me in Romans 12, probably a familiar passage to many of us, Romans 12, verses 1 to 2. As you're turning there, I must apologize for picking such high songs this evening. I can't read music, and so to me, the words sound good. That's okay. <laughs> That's okay. We can suffer singing a little bit of high to sing the praise of our glorious God. Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this evening, I pray that the testimonies that we have just sung would be the desires of our heart. That we would be yours. That we would desire to be found faithful. Even as we come to the word of God this evening, we pray that we would come with a spirit, with a heart that desires to grow and to change. Take those wicked parts within us and rip them away. Mold us into your image. Accomplish your purpose through your word this evening. And we pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Just over a week ago, we celebrated Christmas. And if you're like me, if you have young kids, or if you have grandkids, or if you have nieces and nephews, Christmas might mean putting together things. You might find yourself on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, opening a new toy, whatever it may be, and putting it together. These times of putting stuff together can be a fun process or can be a process of great stress. For myself, I'm not the most handyman in the world. I'm probably not even in the top five. So for me, it's often more stressful than it is fun to put things together. But as you get these things and you're following the, the instructions, uh, if you're a, like me and you don't have no idea what you're doing, so you're following the instructions, the instructions are very particular. There's an order in which things must be done, is there not? And if you miss one step at the beginning, when you get to the end, it's not going to line up. You've got to take everything apart and get right back down there to the beginning. You've got to figure out what the problem is. We know the end goal. It's the picture on the box. And the instructions let us know what we need in order to get there, and specifically how to get there. As we come to Romans 12 this evening, we find ourselves in a new year, which means it's time for a new theme for the year. In 2020, we focused on the church. And here in 2021, I want to focus on one another. But one another is one of those themes that you can't just jump into. There has to be some groundwork laid first. It's, impo it's important to know not just what I ought to do, how I ought to treat others, but why I ought to do it and how I can do it. 
We know that we ought to love others. We know that we ought to forgive one another. We know that we ought to be kind to one another. We know that we ought to encourage one another and to build one another up. We know these things. These are all important things. But how can we do this? How can we do it? There's a reason we're starting here in Romans 12, 1 and 2. If you know these verses, and you know the theme of one another, you may be thinking, what do these have to do with one another? Well, this evening we're going to see that in order to love others rightly, you must first love God wholly. As we look at these verses this evening, we'll see Paul's exhortation, Paul's expectation, and then the evidence. The first thing we see is the exhortation in uh, verse 1a. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. As we turn here to Romans 12, it's important for us to remember that we're jumping right into the middle of a book. We're not starting at the beginning. We're jumping 11 chapters into Paul's argument, what Paul is saying. There's context to what he's saying here. There's 11 chapters of foundation that build to this moment. And it's important for us to properly understand where we are and what it is that Paul is saying. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. That word, therefore, clues us into the fact, if we didn't realize it, when you see the big 12 before the verse, that word, therefore, clues us into the fact there's context around this. Therefore, here it refers to the mercies of God as expounded in Romans chapters 1 through 11. I beseech you there, I beseech you therefore, by the mercies of God. And the mercies of God are chapters 1 through 11. Romans 1 to 8, Paul details the mercy of God in salvation. Romans 9 to 11, Paul focuses on the mercy of God in election. In Romans 12 to 16, Paul focuses on the sanctification of the believer. Speaking in broad terms, you could say that, Romans 1, that, that, that in Romans 1 to 11, Paul's laying the theological foundation. And then here in Romans 12 to 16, Paul transitions to the practical application. Or more simply, you could say that Romans 1 to 11 is what God has done, and Romans 12 to 16 is what I must do in response to what God has done. What is it that God has done? What are these truths, this mercy of God that Paul unpacks in the first 11 chapters of Romans? What God has done is that by His mercy, God has saved us. As you start at the beginning of the Romans, we all stand before a righteous and a just God without excuse. We are sinners. And the penalty for our sin is death. We are separated from a holy God. But God who is just has become the justifier. By sending His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. 
We see that salvation comes in Christ by faith alone. And that salvation has always been by faith alone. For those who are in Christ, we see that they, they, they face no condemnation. They are adopted as sons of God. They have full assurance that God will never let them go. And assurance comes not just from who God is, but from, as is unpacked, God's election of us. All of that is packed into that word, therefore. I beseech you, therefore, on these mercies of God that I have just unpacked, it is on these grounds of the infinite mercy as displayed in our salvation, election, and security that Paul here exhorts us. I beseech you. I exhort you. I plead with you. Paul's coming exhortation is rooted in God's love for us as displayed in Jesus' finished work on the cross on our behalf. Notice the order here, though. Notice that it is not our work that motivates God to save us. But it is God who has saved us that motivates our response. Paul does not say, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable God, so that you can experience the mercy of God. That's not what he says. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. mercy of God is not our hope. That is not what we are striving after. The mercy of God is what motivates us. It is already ours. It is finished. It's an impossibly quick overview of the depths of the love of God as expounded in Romans 1 to 11. I'd encourage you to mine those depths on your own. But know that it is true and it is what God has done for us that Paul calls our attention to. To motivate us to this exhortation that he has given. To motivate us to respond rightly. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, on account of the mercies of God. To come to the end of verse 1 and to the beginning of verse 2, we see Paul's expectation for us then. What is this exhortation? It's clear that Paul is building to something. This passage is an exhortation. So while it's true that the mercy of God is amazing, this mercy must motivate us to something. And it's Paul's expectation that we who are in Christ will heed this exhortation. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, Acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Because of God's mercy, we must present ourselves to Him as a living sacrifice. But what does that mean? A living sacrifice is a strange concept, it's almost an oxymoron. We use the word sacrifice, and it means to give something up. If I sacrifice my seat at the big table to go eat with the kids, I'm giving that up. 
I'm moving on. To sacrifice for the team means that you set aside your ambitions for a second in order to take a lesser role for the benefit of everyone. Sacrificial, sacrificial giving means to give a little extra money or resources to the point that maybe it hurts a little bit. However, Paul's audience would have had a much more violent view of sacrifice. The word sacrifice probably would have brought to mind suffering and death. They would have pictured an animal having its throat cut or being cut open. An animal giving its life up for the benefit of those offering the sacrifice. Sacrifice to them was not just a, a, a little thing. It was not giving a little extra or setting aside for a, just a little bit, but it was giving everything. A sacrifice was wholly given to the cause for which it, which it was sacrificed, whether willingly or unwillingly. Therefore, a living sacrifice is wholly giving yourself to something or someone. Rather than dying for that thing, you are living for that thing. You no longer make decisions with your best interests in mind, but with their best interests in mind. Your life is now theirs. Your life is not your own. First Corinthians 6, 19-20 puts it very plainly this way. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. He's making the same point there that he is here. You are not your own. To present your body as a living sacrifice means to give up your sinful wants, your desires, your dreams. To turn from your old life from which you have been saved and to pursue Christ above all else. In fact, notice how Paul goes on to describe this living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It is holy. Present yourself wholly acceptable to God. That's not two separate ideas, holy and acceptable to God. Rather, it's the same idea, holy, which makes you acceptable to God. In Christ, we are positionally holy before God. We are set apart. Paul is not here encouraging us to work to make ourselves holy so that we can be acceptable to God. Rather, he's saying, in Christ, you are holy. You are acceptable to God. In mercy, he has made us so. Therefore, present your body as a living sacrifice to him because you already is. There's no other option. In fact, that's the next thing he says. Reasonable. This is your reasonable service. It is a reasonable response to what God has done. To accept that you are a sinner deserving of death, to place your faith in Christ and to find forgiveness in life, and then to turn from God and to go on living the same way is unreasonable. That doesn't make any sense. It is illogical. It is insane. We have been made holy in Christ. We are acceptable to God. Therefore, the mercy of God in Christ 
must motivate us to be a living sacrifice to God. It is the only reasonable response. It is what is right. It is what should be natural. Paul continues actually in verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This type of living touches every area of life. It must be a moment-by-moment decision to die to self and to live for Christ. Here in the beginning of verse 2, we see the war within the believer between the old man and the new man. This is a war that we know well, do we not? You feel that tug. In fact, you've given in to it many a time. I have as well. It's a war. Although we are holy and acceptable to God in Christ, we are still in the flesh and we are still in this evil world and the desires of the old man are still fighting for our attention. And Paul uses two words here, the word conform and the word transform. Don't be conformed, rather be transformed. Do not be conformed to this world. To conform is to adapt or to adjust. For the believer, it is to act unreasonably. To adopt the world's thinking into, and action is to be conformed. John MacArthur puts it this way, to conform is an outward expression that does not reflect what is really on the inside. To conform to the world is for one who's been changed on the inside to live like he's not been changed. It is for one who has been changed who should reasonably react, respond to God by giving himself as a, offering his body as a living sacrifice, choosing not to do that. That is to conform. You have been made new. You have been changed. But you are living like you have not. Your action does not match your identity. You are being unreasonable. That's what it means to be conformed to the world. Don't do that. Instead, be transformed. Instead of conforming to the world, the believer must be transformed from the inside out. Your outward expression must transform to match your inward reality. Your true identity in Christ. How does this happen? Paul tells us right here. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed how? By the renewing of your mind. By the renewing of your mind. Notice he doesn't say, and be transformed by your self-will. Just fight it, just push it down. No, he says, by the renewing of your mind. It's through the word of God, as 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 tells us. It is through the ministry of the indwelling Holy Spirit, as Galatians 5, 22-26 tells us, and Ephesians 5, 15-21 
As Peter promises in 2 Peter 1.3, God has given us all that we need for life and godliness. We have been fully equipped for the transformation that God has called us to and that he has promised to complete in us. Therefore, there is no excuse. God has saved us by his mercy and he's equipped us through his grace. We must, therefore, present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service, being transformed by the renewing of our minds. God has called us to this. God has equipped us for this. We have no excuse not to do this. Now, comforting it is for us to pause and to realize that what God has called us to, God has equipped us for God hasn't called us to this and then just left us alone. Figure it out. Figure it out. If you really love me, you'll push those old desires down. You're on your own. I want to see how much you love me. It's not what God has done. He's given us his word. He's given us his spirit. He's equipped us for the fight that he has called us to. Be transformed. As you come to the end of verse 2, you see then the evidence. It is as you present your body a living sacrifice and as you are transformed by the renewing of your mind that your works will show you change. Notice once again the order here. It's not the other way around. Paul does not implore these believers to show their works so that they can be transformed. Rather, because you are transformed, your works should match your reality. The transformation will be evident through their works, what God has done in them. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The word prove here carries the idea both of showing and of approving. Not only will my actions change, but my mind will change. As I act differently, I will think differently. My thoughts will start to align with Scripture. My will will start to become God's will, Lord willing. In the next several verses and chapters, Paul will show specifically what this transformation looks like. And he will specifically show this by looking at how we relate to one another. And this is how we come around to our theme for the year. In chapters 12... 13, 14, into 15. Paul looks at relationships. He looks at what this mindset, what this changed living looks like in real life. How do I relate to others? How should I view myself? How should I view the government? How should I, how should I view, how should I submit to others? What does this look like? It's exactly where Paul goes with this. And we know this, do we not? We already know this. We know that love for God translates into love for others. Just a few years ago, our theme was on the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. Those who love God will love others. And conversely, you cannot love others rightly if you don't love God wholly. 
the same principle that we see here in Romans 12. And before Paul begins to address how we relate to one another, he calls us to love and to submit to God first. In fact, as you look at the book of Romans, that's the progression that you see. That right theology must lead to right action and to right relationships. It is the theological foundation of Romans 1 to 11 that leads to the practical application of Romans 12 to 16. We must be right in our theology, and we must rightly apply our theology. And that affects how we treat one another. Right theology that does not lead to right relationships is nothing more than a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, as Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 13. As I mentioned earlier, our theme for this year is one another. Before we can love one another rightly, we must love God wholly. In fact, if I were to stand up here this evening and to demand that you love one another without first calling you to submit to God, I would be a lousy pastor. I want us to honestly search our hearts this year and dig into this theme and dig into the scriptures and see what it says about one another. If we don't love one another, our brothers and our sisters in Christ, how can we love those around us who are without Christ? How can we reach our neighbors and our coworkers and our family if we can't even connect with one another? How can I go to the world if I can't love you here? But before we can even get there, we need to pause and to search our hearts. We need to make sure that we are a living sacrifice and that we are being transformed by the renewing of our minds. I'm not talking about the person across the aisle from you or the person beside you or the person in front of you or the person behind you. I am talking about you. Be honest with yourself. Search your own heart. Honestly ask yourself this evening, am I being conformed to the world or am I being transformed by the renewing of my mind? Are you being conformed? Or are you being transformed? What needs to change? If we're going to love each other rightly, we must first love God wholly. Brothers and sisters in Christ, be transformed. We're going to close our service this evening by singing the song, May the Lord Find Us Faithful.